Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The cost of this fight uh, is not cheap, but caving to aggression is going to be more costly if we allow it to happen. Russia is the aggressor. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Russia is the aggressor, and the world must and will hold Russia accountable. That's President Biden as he urges Congress to approve a massive new aid package to help Ukraine fight against Russia. He wants quick passage, but we'll explain how the fight over immigration here at home could get in the way. Meanwhile, new attacks all across Ukraine, from the capital, Kyiv, to the eastern regions, even as the United Nations chief visits the country. We'll get a live report from the ground. And the January 6th committee ready to go public as the chairman announces the date of the first open hearings. Good morning, and welcome to Way Too Early on this Friday, April 29th. I'm Jonathan Lemire. President Biden is asking Congress to fund a sweeping aid package aimed at keeping Ukraine in the fight against Russia for at least the next five months. The president is proposing $33 billion in military, economic, and humanitarian assistance. It's more than double the size of the nearly depleted $13.6 billion aid package that was approved last month. The president announced his proposal by acknowledging, quote, the cost of this fight is not cheap. We either back Ukrainian people as they defend their country or we stand by as the Russians continue their atrocities and aggression in Ukraine. Every day, every day, the Ukrainians pay for the price with, and the price they pay is with their lives for this fight. So we need to contribute arms, funding, ammunition, and the economic support to make their courage and sacrifice have purpose so they can continue this fight and do what they're doing. It's critical this funding gets approved and approved as quickly as possible. The president also asked Congress to enhance U.S. authority to liquidate the assets of sanctioned Russian oligarchs and then take that money and donate it to Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky recorded a thank you video saying he's grateful to the American people. He also urged Congress to pass the measure quickly. However, the funding could hit a snag if Senate Democrats try to link it to a COVID funding bill. Both measures have bipartisan support, but Republicans hoping to add Title 42 immigration amendments to the COVID funding oppose that tie-in. Congress has passed legislation that gives President Biden the ability to quickly supply Ukraine with weapons on loan. The measure invokes a famed World War II era law that allowed President Franklin D. Roosevelt to help arm British forces in their fight against Hitler. The House passed the measure overwhelmingly with just 10 Republicans voting against it. It had already been passed unanimously by the Senate earlier this month. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin had, as you might imagine, urged Congress to pass the legislation. He told reporters yesterday that the Pentagon is looking at new ways to send additional artillery and air defense weapons to Ukraine. Meanwhile, in the war-torn country, several explosions rocked the capital of Kyiv, shattering weeks of calm in that city. At least 10 people were injured in the attacks that came barely an hour after talks ended between President Zelensky and the U.N. Secretary General, who was touring the war-torn capital to assess the damage. 
Local officials say they believe that five Russian missiles hit two high-rise residential buildings in the central part of the city. Zelensky said Russians were trying to, quote, humiliate the United Nations and said Moscow's actions demand a strong response. The city has been slowly coming back to life this month after Russian troops retreated from the area to focus their offensive in eastern Ukraine. Russian rockets also pounded a makeshift hospital inside that steel plant in Mariupol, where thousands of civilians and fighters have been holed up. Ukraine's Minister of Foreign Affairs yesterday said that dozens of already wounded soldiers were killed, and many were injured further in that strike. The ministry also said that the attack was a violation of the Geneva Convention, which lays down certain protocols for treatment of civilians during a war. A video posted on Twitter showed people combing through the rubble to remove the dead and search for survivors. This, as the founder of the far-right military group, the Azov Battalion, issued a fresh appeal, saying, quote, The situation gets complicated every hour. Our people need rescue. The bombing of the hospital came as the U.S. Secretary of General called for a ceasefire in the besieged port city and the opening of evacuation corridors, saying, quote, thousands of civilians need life-saving assistance. He also called the situation in Mariupol a crisis within a crisis. Meanwhile, President Zelensky said in a telegram message that Ukraine is ready for, quote, immediate talks with the help of the U.N. to evacuate civilians in that port city. Joining us now live from Lviv, Ukraine, NBC News foreign correspondent, Raf Sanchez. Raf, good morning. Thank you, as always, for being here today. We heard from President Zelensky really pushing for this idea of these humanitarian corridors to get civilians outside of that steel plant, which has become in many ways the Alamo for Ukraine, encircled by Russian forces. What more do we know about this plan? Is there any sense that the Russians are going to go for it? Jonathan, good morning. At this hour, there is a glimmer, a glimmer of hope for women and children inside that steel plant, albeit a faint one. President Zelensky's office is saying they are planning an operation today to get civilians out of that steel plant. That is according to Reuters. It has not been independently confirmed by NBC News. But that would be a big moment if we were to see women and children coming out of that steel plant after weeks and weeks of Russian siege. Now, the United Nations has not confirmed anything, but we know they did move a team down to Zaporizhia yesterday to be in place in case there was a window for an evacuation to go ahead. Now, I want to put a couple of dashes of cold water on this. There is no official confirmation from the Russians, and they obviously have a say in this. They have agreed to and then reneged on humanitarian corridors in the past. We have also spoken this morning to a Ukrainian Marine down in the tunnels underneath that steel plant. He says there has been talk every day for the last four days of evacuations and they haven't materialized. He says he's not seeing anything this morning so far that suggests that this evacuation is going to go ahead. And Jonathan, that's one of the things that's been so striking about this siege. These people with barely any food, barely any water, unable to see the daylight, they have cell service so they can communicate with us. They can tell us about the almost unimaginable conditions down there. President Zelensky telling Time magazine he texts or calls with the commander of that Ukrainian Marine unit every single day, getting a sense of what it is like for those forces. So, Jonathan, we will see what happens in the coming hours. You and I have talked in the past 
that there is a universe in which Putin wants this siege at the steel plant to end so he can take full control of Mariupol, so he can free up his troops there and send them to the Eastern Front. But this is feeling like it may be a critical day in this weeks-long siege at that steel plant. Jonathan? Yeah, and we're going to be keeping a careful eye on that. Uh, as the day goes on. But, Raf, we wanted to shift focus to the West here. Uh, these explosions in the capital of Kyiv, shattering, which had been weeks of calm. Is there a sense from the Ukrainian officials that you've been speaking to that this was a one petulant act by Russia timed to the U.N. chief's visit? Or do they think that there could be more assaults coming to the capital? I think it's both, Jonathan. There is a very clear sense in Kyiv that this was designed to humiliate the U.N. chief after he walked around the suburb of Borodyanka earlier in the day, looking at the scene of these alleged Russian war crimes. President Zelensky was very clear. It was no coincidence that Russian missiles were hitting the capital just an hour or so after the U.N. chief was meeting him at the presidential palace. He called for a firm response. Now, we know at least two residential high-rises were hit in this missile strike. Ten people injured, one man reportedly losing his leg in this attack. And this is part of a broader trend that we're seeing. The fighting on the ground is in the east, but the Russians determined to strike every corner of this country from Kyiv to Lviv down to Odessa with their missiles, hitting places that they can't get their ground troops into. Now, the Russian Ministry of Defense says they were targeting a military production factory in Kyiv last night. They say this was a precision strike. We haven't seen evidence of that. We do know civilians were injured in this attack. And it's a reminder that nowhere in this country is out of range of Vladimir Putin's missiles. Jonathan? Yeah, it certainly feels like another strike in their campaign of terror uh, against civilian populations. NBC's Raf Sanchez, thank you as always for the terrific reporting. Still ahead here on Way Too Early, the January 6th committee sets a date for public hearings. Plus, the Justice Department is making moves to seize more stuff from Russian oligarchs. Look at those nice yachts. And the FDA wants to take a major brand of cigarettes off the market. Those stories and a check on the weather when we come right back as we take a look at a pre-dawn U.S. Capitol. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Chen Saki. Have you ever seen the house this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. The chairman of the January 6th Select Committee says the first public hearings will be held on June 9th. Chairman Benny Thompson says there will be eight hearings in all spread throughout the month of June. The chairman says that Donald Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and Republican House Leader Kevin McCarthy are all on the list of people the committee would like to hear testimony from. The Justice Department has filed a new lawsuit against Donald Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort. The DOJ is accusing Manafort of failing to report interest from a foreign bank accounts and is seeking nearly $3 million. 
This is just the latest in a long line of legal woes for Manafort. Back in 2019, you'll recall, he was sentenced to 47 months in prison on fraud and tax charges. He was released early in 2020 due to health concerns because of the pandemic. Trump later gave him a full pardon shortly before leaving office. Young children in the United States may soon, finally, be able to get some protection from COVID-19. Moderna has asked the FDA to authorize its vaccine for children under the age of six. This comes after cases in that age group have spiked over the last few weeks in this recent COVID surge. NBC News correspondent Stephanie Gosk has more on this long-awaited announcement. A year and a half after the first COVID-19 vaccine for adults was authorized, Moderna now says it has a version for children ages six months through five years old that is safe and provides robust protection. When we look at effectiveness, we see excellent level of antibody uh, in these children. The vaccine is two shots taken four weeks apart, 25 percent of the adult dose. The company says it is 51 percent effective for ages six months to two years and 37 percent for ages two through five. Those numbers only tell part of the story, according to a doctor who helped conduct the trial. There was no severe disease or uh, hospitalizations uh, observed within uh, the trial, but we did see some infections. Anne Rodriguez enrolled her twin four-year-olds in part to protect vulnerable adults in the family. It was really important for us to get our kids vaccinated as soon as we reasonably could. But a majority of parents of young children appear much more tentative. Oh, I'm not sure. I might wait for some other kids to get it first. I think it's not necessary at this moment. Only 28 percent of kids ages 5 to 11 have gotten two doses of the vaccine. The FDA could authorize Moderna's pediatric vaccine as early as June. The CDC says 75 percent of children 17 and younger have contracted COVID. Medical experts recommending even children who are infected with Omicron should be vaccinated. Number one, we don't know how long infection-induced immunity lasts. And number two, vaccines don't just protect against the variant that they had. They can protect against future variants. And now, after a long wait, the youngest among us may soon get that protection. That will be greeted as good news for parents of so many young children that I know. The Food and Drug Administration has proposed a a plan to ban menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars in the United States. Menthol accounts for more than a third of cigarettes sold in America. The proposal would likely have the deepest impact on black smokers. According to a government survey, nearly 85% use menthol cigarettes, compared to just 29% of white smokers. Public health experts say the landmark plan to the gov- is the government's most meaningful action in more than a decade toward tobacco control. Still ahead, we're recapping a huge night in sports. The NFL draft kicked off in Las Vegas, and three more teams are moving on in the NBA playoffs. That's next on Way Too Early. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 
Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. Back a year ago. With the first pick in the 2022 NFL Draft, the Jacksonville Jaguars select Trayvon Walker, linebacker, Georgia. First of all, few things unite a divided nation like everyone loudly booing NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. It was epic last night. But you see him there introduce Jacksonville Jaguars as they took Georgia pass rusher Trayvon Walker with the first pick in the NFL draft. Selecting the six foot five, 272 pound Walker over Michigan star Aiden Hutchinson, who was then chose by the Detroit Lions, his hometown team, with the number two pick. For just the second time in draft history and the first time in 31 years, the first five picks were all used on defensive players. And there was just one quarterback drafted in last night's first round. Pitt's Kenny Pickett, who also didn't go far. He gets selected by the Pittsburgh Steelers at number 20. That's pretty fun. There are also nine draft day trades, the most in a first round since 2010, including a blockbuster that lands Tennessee Titan star receiver A.J. Brown. He heads to the Philadelphia Eagles in exchange for the 18th and 101st overall picks. Brown has reportedly agreed to a four-year, $100 million deal with Philadelphia. The draft continues tonight. Three more NBA playoff teams advanced to the conference semifinals last night. The Dallas Mavericks rallied from a 12-point halftime deficit to clinch their first playoff series victory since the 2011 NBA Finals. The 98-96 win over the Utah Jazz last night in Game 6 sends the Mavs to Phoenix, where they will face the top-seeded Suns in Game 1 of the Western Conference semifinals. That will begin Monday. Phoenix survived a scare, but eliminated New Orleans last night with a 115-109 win. Top seed in the West moves on. And the city of Philadelphia was growing very worried about their Sixers, but they didn't blow a 3-0 series lead. In fact, they made easy work of the Raptors in Toronto last night, defeating the Raptors in Game 6, 132-97, and advancing to an Eastern Conference semifinal matchup against the Miami Heat. There is still one first-round series going. It's out west. The Memphis Grizzlies will have a chance to close out the Minnesota Timberwolves. They play Game 6 tonight. We go to the NHL and to Ottawa, where the visiting Florida Panthers beat the Senators 4-0 last night. And combined with the Nashville Predators' shootout win over the Western Conference-leading Colorado Avalanche, the Panthers clinched their first President's Trophy for the best record in the regular season. They also, more importantly, have home ice advantage throughout the Stanley Cup playoffs, which start in just a few days. Turning now to Major League Baseball and a really cool moment on the field in Atlanta yesterday, ahead of the game between the Braves and the Cubs. Chicago's all-star catcher 
Wilson Contreras shared a teary-eyed embrace with his newly promoted younger brother, William. Aaron, you see them at home plate. The brothers got the opportunity to exchange lineup cards before they squared off against each other at the major league level for the very first time. That is great to see. And as for the game, Braves fans love this, too. Atlanta star Ronald Acuna Jr. returned to the Braves lineup for the first time since undergoing major knee surgery after he tore his right ACL in July of last season. The Braves went on to win the World Series without him. Acuna, who's their best player and is an electric talent, he played right field and batted leadoff. He went one for five and a pair of stolen bases in last night's 5-1 to one win over Chicago. Time now for the weather, and let's go to meteorologist Michelle Grossman. Michelle, how's it looking there, and what kind of weekend do we have in store? Hi there, Jonathan. So we are looking really cold in the Northeast. You're probably, probably feeling that in D.C. We're feeling that in New York City as well. So we do have freeze warnings, 22 million people impacted by these freeze warnings. Where you see the hot pink here from Cleveland to Pittsburgh, Harrisburg, also the state of New Jersey, Trenton, and Byland. We're waking up to temperatures near freezing. So we do have the freeze warning through early this morning. But we're going to start to warm. Not so much today. Still cool, still below normal for this time of year, but we're tacking on those degrees. Tomorrow in uh, New York City, just one degree below normal, so not quite as chilly as we have been at 66, 57 in Rochester. But look what happens as we start the new work week. We're looking at temperatures much warmer, 75. By Tuesday in Philadelphia, Richmond, we're looking at temperatures into the low 80s. Let's switch gears, talk about the severe threat that we're going to be monitoring today through this evening into the uh, nighttime hours. And we're looking at enhanced risk. That's pretty high. That's three out of five on this scale. Nine million at risk. We could see uh, hell as large as softballs. Jonathan. Michelle Grossman, thank you very much and have a great weekend. You too. Still ahead, we're digging into the new efforts by the the Biden administration to go after Russian oligarchs who may be evading sanctions. Plus, my interview with White House economic advisor Jared Bernstein on the heels of a new report showing the U.S. economy shrank in the first three months of the year for the first time that's happened in a while. We're back in a minute. Welcome back to Way Too Early. It's coming up on 5.30 a.m. on the East Coast, 2.30 out West. It's Friday. I'm Jonathan Lemire. This week's prisoner swap with Russia is bringing more attention to other Americans who are still being held there. Paul Whelan has been in Russian custody since December of 2018. The Marine veteran was in Moscow for a wedding but was arrested on espionage charges, which he and his family say were fabricated by Russian intelligence. In June of 2020, he was convicted of spying and sentenced to 16 years in prison. President Biden released a statement following the release of Trevor Reed on Wednesday. In it, he mentions Whelan, but another high-profile American was not included. That's WNBA star Brittany Griner, who you'll recall was arrested on drug charges at Moscow's airport back in February, just before the war began. There's been very little information about Griner since she was detained. An official with the State Department met with her last month and said the two-time Olympic gold medalist was in good condition. Griner has a court date coming up next month, which could determine when her case goes to trial. The State Department says it remains focused on the release of both Americans. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the Justice Department is seeking new funding to go after Russian oligarchs suspected of evading sanctions. At a congressional hearing yesterday, Garland said the DOJ is requesting $67 million to help freeze, seize, and turn over assets. This comes after the House passed a bill earlier this week 
urging President Biden to sell the frozen assets of Russian oligarchs and use the money to provide additional military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Joining us now here on set, political reporter for Axios, Lachlan Marquet. Lachlan, great to see you. Um, let's start there. The White House says it's running out of money uh, to fund Ukraine aid, and they're looking to pick up some by converting these yachts into money passes. Uh, I think you and I would both be happily take possession of one of these yachts if we were so asked by the government. Uh, how much of a boon could this be? Yeah, there's a shifting strategic value here. I think initially the idea was you put pressure on these oligarchs, and hopefully they put political pressure inside the Kremlin on Vladimir Putin and his inner circle. Obviously, these are folks who, with a lot of political clout in Russia. I think it's clear by now that there probably isn't the domestic political pressure to, to shift Russia's course in this invasion. So now it's turned to, well, this is a creative way to provide resources to, uh, to fighters in Ukraine. It's estimated that about $2.5 billion worth of, of these yachts have been seized worldwide belonging to these Russian oligarchs. So, you know, it's a, uh, in addition to the billions that, that we're authorizing an official aid to Ukraine. It's just a way to pump a little more money into that effort because, uh, you know, Ukraine can use every dime it can get right now. You make a good point. In those first couple of weeks of the war, there was the sense that there were oligarchs who were unhappy with yeah. Putin. We saw protests in the street in Russia. Those have largely faded. Yeah, you know, it, it, I, I think there's a lot of consolidation uh, happening right now inside the Kremlin around Vladimir. You know, the, this nationalist spirit has really flared up. Um, you know, that was the initial hope that, you know, whether it was through seizing yachts and private jets or, you know, these these massive, unprecedented international sanctions, that that would, um, you know, that would be sort of an indirect way to apply pressure to Putin and his inner circle. And I just I don't think that's materialized. I think this has shown that it, it, it's not really a deterrent effect, these sanctions, but that doesn't mean they're not useful in other ways. So you mentioned the uh, ask of the new ask from President Biden. Yeah. Thirty three billion dollars in funding for Ukraine. But it's not going to be so easy to just get it over there. Walk us through some of the complications on Capitol Hill, including how they're connecting it to Title 42. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously, Republicans, uh, you know, really, you know, they see immigration as a very potent issue right now, perhaps uh, understandably. Um, you know, they're not going to want to. I, I think the idea is to tie that to sort of a covid uh, related package, which is then in turn tied to Ukraine aid. You know, the, the bigger these packages get on Capitol Hill, the more objections you tend to see from, you know, from both sides of the aisle. So it's something that by itself would probably receive a lot of bipartisan support. The bigger uh, these sorts of legislative uh, deals get, you know, the, the more difficult it is gonna, it is going to be to get it over the finish line. And lastly, one of the things that always happens here in Washington, as soon as an amount of money is allotted, people start asking, like, when, well, when's the next one coming? Sure. And obviously the president suggested yesterday and officials near him say that this will be about five months worth. I mean, thirty three billion dollars. Yeah. Um, but. We heard from Chairman Milley just in the last few weeks saying this war could last far longer than that. Is there any concern, the officials you've talked to, that at a certain point, the appetite from the public and Congress to keep funding money to Ukraine might run out? Well, the, there's... There's hefty appetite in the general public for continuing to support Ukraine, but that's of course different from appetite among Congress and in Washington. Um, you know, $33 billion is about half the size of the entire Russian defense budget. Um, so you're talking really serious money. Um, I think there's immense strategic value there that, that the Pentagon and the Biden administration see. But, uh, you know, whether or not there's public support for it is different, you know, from the, the actual legislative nuts and bolts of getting the stuff over the finish line. Um, and especially, you know, if we 
we potentially head into a recession. We're, we're already seeing one quarter of negative growth. I think that's going to be a much harder sell. I think an ask of this size also reinforces the Biden administration's goal. We heard this from Secretary Austin this week to weaken Russia to the point right. that they couldn't do something like this again. Lachlan Marquet, thank you as always. Come back soon. Thank you. And still ahead, we're live with CNBC for an early look at the markets as Wall Street looks to continue a rally off of big tech earnings. We're going to have that and other business news next on Way Too Early. Time now for business. And for that, let's bring in our friend, CNBC's Rosanna Lockwood, who joins us live from London. Rosanna, good morning. Uh, U.S. stocks rallied yesterday uh, despite a negative economic report. Can the stock market continue that momentum today? What are the early signs? Early signs, not good, unfortunately, are pointing towards a negative outlook on the U.S. futures for all main indices. Now, tech is the big story of the day. You had Amazon plunging almost 9% in after hours yesterday after reporting earnings and investment in Rivian not going down so well. Apple was also slightly lower. But tech from Asia might be the gift we're all looking for today. The Hang Seng Tech Index in Hong Kong up above 10% today. There's an audit issue between China and the U.S. It's heading towards a resolution. It seems also some more fiscal support from Beijing might be supporting China more broadly. So uh, that's handed over to a pretty green start here in Europe. And maybe we can give it to you guys, too. <laughs> Let's hope. Uh, we heard yesterday that the U.S. economy shrank in the first quarter. And if it shrinks again for the current quarter, we'll officially be in a recession. Tell us more about that. Yeah, it's been a concern economists have been highlighting for a few months now, and it's an issue for the Fed as well, because with runaway inflation, with prices getting higher, they raise interest rates. They don't want to tip the economy then into a recession. And what you don't want is stagflation, where you've basically got high interest rates and slow growth. And the U.S. labor market's been recovering quite well, so I want to keep an eye on that as well. I've had plenty of people asking me, are we back in the sort of financial crisis-style recession? I'd say to that, no. I graduated into that in 2009. The economic drivers this time are different, so we might come out of recession a bit quicker. Well, after some depressing recession talk, let's send you into the weekend on a more on a lighter note. Tropicana, they want us to change up our breakfast routine. What can you tell us about the company's new venture? Yeah, I don't know about this one, John. I think it sounds like a very clever way to get people to buy not one, but two Tropicana ingredients at once. Of course, the great big orange juice maker is what we're talking about here. They've developed the cereal, which you can pour orange juice on instead of milk. Time to launch mm. with Orange Juice Day on May the 4th, which I thought was Star Wars Day. But it's, you know, uh, they're basically saying uh, they've created the perfect kind of pairing. So you can, quote, sip your sunshine and eat it, too. And, quote, whether you hate it or love it, we know you'll try it. And with some tedious inevitability, I think we will. <laughs> One, obviously, for morning shows, we care about breakfast routines. Two, orange juice on cereal? No thanks. CNBC's Rosanna Lockwood, live from London. Thank you and have a good weekend. <laughs> Still ahead, we'll get more insight on America's financial future from White House economic advisor Jared Bernstein. Plus, a major development in Europe as the EU is now one step closer to banning Russian oil. That's all ahead on Way Too Early. Back now to the economy and new data that shows that the United States economy shrank in the first three months of the year after a strong growth to close out 2021. Analysts say the economy contracted largely because the government cut back on pandemic-related spending. 
But there are plenty of other factors at play, from supply chain woes to the war in Ukraine. And we're certainly feeling the fallout from the gas pump to the grocery store. At the White House yesterday, I caught up with Jared Bernstein, a member of the Council on Economic Advisors. We had a wide-ranging conversation about the challenges facing the country and what yesterday's GDP report means for America's financial future. We don't want to overinterpret one quarterly or one monthly number. In this report, we had a couple of volatile components, very nerdy things like inventory buildup and net exports that were negative. What's important is that we had strong consumer spending and strong business investment. If you look at those components, which are much more kind of the core of the economy's growth, you actually get a 3.7% growth rate, so that's relatively strong. And interestingly, analysts across the board, this isn't just us, markets as well, uh, understood that once you get under the hood of the report, uh, the negatives look pretty volatile, pretty temporary relative to the positives. So though, with this report combined with, there have been some warnings from some banks, Deutsche Bank and others, that a recession could be on the horizon. Does the White House feel that? Certainly we're keeping track of all the recession probabilities that the market shop the banks are putting out. But our view is that the economy is really a a matter of tailwinds and headwinds right now. The tailwinds are very strong. Probably the most important is the job market. There was also a very strong unemployment insurance report this month showing uh, rates that were You have to go back to the 1970s to see uh, such strong job growth uh, as far as those claims go. And so if you look at the factors that are pushing the economy forward, people have strong balance sheets. Net worth is elevated. Debt service is quite low. Strong jobs. We've seen wage gains. Uh, You see there are a lot of tailwinds pushing the economy forward. Against that, there are the headwinds, most notably inflation, of course. And they showed up in the GDP report as well. But I think when you balance all of those out, we see steady growth going forward. So let's talk about it. You just mentioned it, inflation. That, of course, is sort of the primary concern polling suggests for voters. And obviously, it's a, it is a headwind, as you say, for the economy. Walk us through a little bit about what the administration is trying to do. The president has detailed uh, all of us uh, thinking about the economy right now to work on this issue of trying to ease the inflationary pressures facing households and their budgets. This means our work at the ports. Uh, we know that something I never used to talk about, dwell time, how long containers are spending in the ports, that's down 50%. Shelves are stocked at about 90%, which is a, a, about as good as it gets. Uh, if you look at uh, his competition agenda, trying to make sure that uh, there's enough competition between firms and in, in industries that are overly concentrated so consumers can benefit from that. If you look at his energy policies, of course, releasing millions of barrels of oil into the energy supply uh, part of the economy, all of those are near-term help to ease inflationary pressures. But of course, we've got to do much more. The president consistently points out uh, what what a challenge these inflation rates are to household budgets. So a Democrat close to the White House just recently put it to me, the two G's are the big concerns here, gasoline and groceries. Let's take them one at a time. Sure. Uh, gasoline first. Fuel prices obviously have gone up considerably. Uh, I know that the president frequently puts the blame squarely on Vladimir Putin and his invasion of Ukraine as part of the reason, but they were already up before then. Tell us what trends you're seeing now. Well, I think if you're talking about the G, you you also do have to talk about the P, which is the Putin Putin price hike. Russia's invasion of Ukraine very clearly putting real pressures on commodity prices in general. Of course, energy, gasoline, food, also fertilizer, other metals. And the president has been upfront with the American people. Those are some costs uh, that that invasion is generating. 
The other part would be groceries. Yeah, um, we've seen prices, corn, soybeans, others right. really soar in, in recent weeks. What can the administration do about that for Americans who are frankly having trouble putting food on their table? When it comes to bringing down price pressures, one of the things presidents tried to do in the food space is uh, is, is in the meatpacking sector. There are uh, four companies that control 80 to 85 percent of all the production of uh, beef and poultry and pork in this country. He's talked about how critical it is to lower the barriers of entry into that uh, industry so that uh, the American people can benefit from more competition, which historically has a downward pressure on prices. And finally, flashing back to Europe with the, the war there and mm -hmm. Putin's invasion, uh, we've seen some European countries take steps. Uh, Germany just announced they're going to be phasing out of using Russian energy. Uh, and there's talk of sanctions on the energy uh, industry as well, which could have a global impact. And some economists warn could lead to a recession that's, that spirals beyond Europe's borders. Well, look, thus far, if you look at the impact of uh, the invasion on energy prices, you certainly see pressures there, especially at the pump. But you've also seen interventions, particularly from this president, around uh, release of uh, barrels from the Strategic Reserve, historically significant ones, uh, the adding of uh, ethanol E15 to some, particularly in the Midwest, that also increases the supply of gas. It's a good granular example of these crosswinds, these cross-cutting pressures, again, we're doing everything we can to help offset the very type of pressures that Putin's unjust and murderous invasion uh, is, is leading to. Uh, and as the president has been very clear about, that's going to cause some cost pressures. Uh, but uh, many of the interventions that we've taken have helped so far. We're going to keep pressing on them. That was my conversation with White House economic advisor Jared Bernstein. Our thanks to him. Up next, the U.S. gets behind an expansion of NATO. And coming up on Morning Joe, live reporting from the ground in Ukraine as Russia launches new attacks across the country. Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer is a guest. Plus, we'll hear from two members of the House Armed Services Committee, Chairman Adam Smith and Congressman Ro Khanna, as President Biden calls for a massive new aid package to help Ukraine's fight. Morning Joe, just a few moments away. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.